following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Now, for this morning, I want to speak about hope. And I want to talk about this theme of hope. Uh, I want to talk a bit about culture and uh, where we're at in Western culture in terms of the loss of hope that I think a lot of people experience. Uh, I want to connect that to a passage in the Bible that talks about the search for hope, the search for meaning, the search for purpose in life, and then draw all of that back to our lives and talk about how we can rediscover a sense of hope in the midst of a culture that often is defined by despair and by hopelessness. So to set this up, I want to play a video clip. Now, this is from a movie. It's called About Schmidt. Some of you might have seen it. It came out a few years ago. Jack Nicholson is the main actor in it. And he plays uh, Warren Schmidt, who is a guy who's retired. He's, uh, he's finished working. He's kind of going through a bit of an identity crisis with all of that. He's uh, got a daughter who's just gotten married to a guy he doesn't like. And he's just gone in this scene. He's just gone to the wedding. Uh, and he's driving back from the wedding. And you hear this voiceover of his own thoughts. And the voiceover is actually a letter that he's writing to his sponsor child. And this is kind of the comical part of it. It's these great reflections on his life, but all in the context of a letter that he's writing to his sponsor child called Indugu. Okay, so this is Warren Schmidt writing to Indugu. Let's watch the screen. Dear Indugu, you'll be glad to know that Jeannie's wedding came off without a hitch. Right now, she and Randall are on their way to sunny Orlando. On my nickel, of course. As for me, I'm headed back to Omaha. I'm driving straight through this time, and I've made only one stop. The impressive new arch over the interstate at Kearney, Nebraska. An arch that commemorates the courage and determination of the pioneers who crossed the state on their way west. I took an Indian bride myself. You've really got to see it to believe it. And it kind of got me thinking. Looking at all that history and reflecting on the achievements of people long ago kind of put things into perspective. My trip to Denver, for instance, is so insignificant compared to the journeys that others have taken, the bravery that they've shown, the hardships they've endured. I know we're all pretty small in the big scheme of things, and I suppose the most you can hope for is to make some kind of difference. But what kind of difference have I made? What in the world is better because of me? When I was out in Denver, I tried to do the right thing, trying to convince Jeannie she was making a big mistake, but I failed. Now she's married to that nincompoop and there's nothing I can do about it. I am weak. And I am a failure. There's just no getting around it. Relatively soon, I will die. Maybe in 20 years. Maybe tomorrow. It doesn't matter. 
Once I am dead and everyone who knew me dies too, it will be as though I never even existed. What difference has my life made to anyone? None that I can think of. None at all. Hope things are fine with you. Yours truly, Warren Schmidt. <laughs> it's kind of miserable and comical at the same time, isn't it? Sort of bizarre. But uh, the reason I play that clip, I mean, there, there's a life that's lacking a lot of hope. As a guy who's retired, he's having an identity crisis, doesn't really know who he is anymore. He's got all this transition going on with his family. That's causing him to feel lonely and isolated and, and separated from the ones that he loves. Uh, he's just got that foreboding sense of his own death, and he's wondering. He's wondering probably a question that we all wonder. You know, what, what difference is my life going to make? When I'm gone, it, it will be as if I've never existed. What have I done that's of any real significance? We're all pretty small in the scheme of things. And once I'm dead and gone, it will be as if I'd never lived at all. That kind of questioning, that kind of thinking, I, th there's a lot of people, I think, in our culture who feel exactly that way. Not just older people, not just people that have a sense of their own imminent death. But I think a lot of people have that same sense of like, does, does my life really matter at a deep level? Is there anything really of significance? I'm spending my time doing all this stuff. I'm filling my days with all these things. I'm clocking up perhaps all of these achievements. But, but, but for what? what, what is it re Once I'm gone, who's even going to remember me? Once I'm out of here, it will be as if, as if, as if I'd never existed at all. And this, I think, has, has kind of settled on us like a sort of cultural mood that so often now people, as they look to the future, as they reflect on their life, rather than feeling a sense of hope, a sense of confidence about the future, there's more of a sense of pessimism, more of a sense of despair and, and cynicism and negativity in life, I think, than a forward kind of looking optimism. Uh, it's borne out in some of the research that's coming through now. There's a group called Barna Group uh, based in the US. They did a huge survey last year of millennials. So people aged 18 to 35, and they interviewed teenagers, young adults across 25 different countries on a range of different questions about their well-being and views of life and faith and all sorts of things. And uh, you, can, you can get a breakdown by country of what they found. And you look at the results for New Zealand, and the statistics are uh, 36, just 36% of the young people they interviewed said they felt hopeful or optimistic about the future. So only about a third of them feel any real sense of optimism about the future that lies ahead of them in life. 51% said they feel uncertain and anxious about the future as they looked at whatever was coming ahead of them. Uh, a third of them said they felt sad and depressed. So this is the, this is the millennial generation. This is the, a new generation now coming through, and any kind of hope they have about the future is, is tending to be outweighed by a sense of anxiety, by a sense of uncertainty, and by this foreboding pessimism about what's coming down the track in life. This has become something that is endemic in Western culture. The way we feel about life, the way we feel about the future tends to be more hopeless than hopeful. 
And it goes hand in hand with the rise of secularism in Western culture. There is a, there is a direct correlation that our cult, Western culture is at the same time becoming more and more secular. That is, God is being removed, Christian faith being removed, faith of all kinds really being removed more and more from the public square. So New Zealand now is one of the most secular countries in the world. I mean, statistically now. So there's almost a half of the people in New Zealand, 49% identify as non-religious. So based on the last census figures, 49%, which has crept up, 49% now identify as non-religious. So almost a half of the population now identifying themselves as having no religion at all, as being secular people, secular thinkers. And that is higher than other Western countries. That's higher than Australia. That's significantly higher than the US and the UK. So we are, as as a country, right on the edge of the secular trend. We're right out on the edge of, of, a, of a very entrenched secularism, a very godless worldview. And of course, what secularism does is to strip out any sense of transcendence in life. There is no transcendent meaning in life. There is nothing beyond what we can see and touch and experience in the natural realm. Human beings are the highest authority there is. And there's certainly no transcendent future beyond this world. And so you're left with a culture and a generation that feel understandably hopeless about life. Because in our secular world, we're promised so much. We are promised that human beings have all authority, have all autonomy, and we can live these great self-fulfilled, self-actualized lives. Whereas in fact, what's happening is the hope that we have in anything beyond ourselves, anything beyond the here and now, is being stripped out of life and leaving us in this, in this vacuum of hope. Because any hope I have, any identity I have, I've just got to find it myself. It's not going to come from anywhere else. And there's no great future to look forward to. I've just got to try and make the best of what I can while I'm here on my own. And so we have a generation coming through now that experience a profound lack of hope. It is becoming entrenched within Western culture. We're all feeling a bit like Warren Schmidt. We're all feeling that kind of sense of of hopelessness. It's summed up pretty well, I think, by the uh, American philosopher Thomas Nagel, who says this, Even if you produce a great work of literature, which continues to be read thousands of years from now, eventually the solar system will cool or the universe will wind down and collapse and all traces of your effort will vanish. It wouldn't matter if you'd never existed. After you've gone out of existence, it won't matter that you did exist. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Uh, It's just such a hopeful day, such a hopeful message, isn't it? But you have to admit, you know, if... If secularism is right, if there is no transcendent meaning in life and there is no future to look forward to, that's where you end up, isn't it? I mean, that is the logical conclusion of a secular worldview, that really nothing we do does matter. It doesn't matter what you achieve, doesn't matter how many thousands of people you might impact and the great things you do. If there is nothing beyond this life and if there's no greater meaning in this life, then really it's all for nothing. It just, it, it's just nothing. And therefore, there is no meaning and therefore there is no hope. Now, what is interesting is how similar all this sounds to the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible. If you've ever had a peek at that book in the Bible, it is a book that kind of has a little bit of the same sentiment, which is interesting because it's in the Bible, you know, which is a book of full of hope. And yet you have this one book 
that sounds a lot like Thomas Nagel and it sounds a lot like Warren Schmidt and it's that same, it sounds like it has that same kind of pessimism about life and that same kind of cynicism about life. So I thought we'd go to Ecclesiastes this morning, the most hopeless book in the Bible, the most depressing book in the Bible and try and find a sense of hope there because I think it is there but you just have to stay with it and you have to work a little bit to find it but I want to read the very first passage in Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes is uh, traditionally believed to be written by Solomon King Solomon there's some debate over that but we'll just assume that it was written by King Solomon for our purposes today and uh, let me read the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes and you see if you can hear the, the resonance with that quote from Thomas Nagel that clip from about Schmidt, see if you could, because Ecclesiastes is such an incredibly modern book in some ways. I mean, it was written thousands of years ago and it could have been written yesterday. It just speaks into our postmodern culture with incredible accuracy. So here it is. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. It's just wonderful to have a public reading of Scripture, isn't it? It's so edifying. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was already here long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I think... King Solomon would have had an interesting conversation with Thomas Nagel and with Warren Schmidt. I think put those three in a room together, there would have been a very interesting discussion going on. It's the same kind of thing, isn't it? That, that sense of searching for meaning and purpose and wondering, is there really any hope in life? And what Solomon is picking up on is the way in which there seems to be the circularity to life. There just seems to be, you know, things often are so mundane. Life often is just so ordinary. Things come and things go, and life just seems to have this repetitious cycle to it that wears us down. Seasons come and seasons go. Uh, clients come, clients go. Projects come, projects go. Customers come, customers go. Bills come, bills go. Washing comes, washing goes. Assignments come, assignments go. Isn't that our life? It just goes round for me, sermons come and sermons go. You know, that's kind of, someone once said, um, preaching every week is like giving birth on Sunday and then finding out on Monday you're pregnant again. That's, that's basically my life, you know, round and round it goes, you know. But we all experience this in different ways. You experience this, the kind of, the monotony of it at times, the circularity of it at times, and it can get wearisome. And we kind of wonder, is, is there really much beyond all of this, does it really count for much? It all just seems like there's nothing new under the sun. That's what Solomon was grappling with 3,000 years ago. And here we are grappling with it in the 21st century. Some things never change, right? Now, the, the, the key to all of this and, and the, the, the first step 
in trying to find some hope in the middle of all this is to pick up on the main word that Solomon uses to describe all of this, which is the word meaningless. Now, he uses it here. If you look in verse 2, he uses it four times. It's actually there five times. It's like the translators couldn't even bring themselves to translate the fifth time, but it's just meaningless, 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 meaningless. Now, the Hebrew word there is the word hebel. Hebel. And it just means a mist or a, a breath or a vapor or a wind, something that just, just comes and goes. Something that is so transient, so fleeting, it's just this mist that appears momentarily and then it dissipates and it's gone. And Solomon is saying, so much of life feels like that. So much of life feels like it doesn't have this enduring, abiding quality. It's just, it's, it's here and then it's gone. And life itself feels like that so much of the time that it's just, it's, it's, it's a breath, it's so quick and then it's gone. And really, what does it mean? Hebel, meaningless, is what he concludes. Now that word, ironically enough, is full of meaning when you look at it. And it's a fascinating exercise to trace that word through the Bible and look at where else it appears. Because the word hebel is not just a word, it's also a name. Do you know what name it is in English? The name Abel. A-B-E-L. Uh, name. And uh, we, some of you know the story of Cain and Abel in the Bible, right? So Abel, that's what his name means. Meaningless. Right, poor guy, you know, that's what your name means, meaningless, great, that's what I got. You know? And names really carry significance in the Bible. And Abel's name means meaningless, and when you look at his story, it gives you a bit of a picture, a bit of a perspective on what that word's all about. Cain and Abel, you know, Abel offers a, a good sacrifice, an acceptable sacrifice to God, and Cain offers one that's not accepted by God. And so Cain becomes envious of his brother and lures him out into a field and takes his life. Right, First murder in the Bible, first homicide in the Bible. And it shows the way that sin has rippled out to affect not just the human individual, but now family relationships, human relationships. And so Abel is this picture of meaninglessness where you have a guy in the prime of life who does the right thing and offers the right sacrifice to God, and yet his life is just snuffed out. That it's just curtains. And, and he has no descendants, he has no children, so he has no legacy. He has no future. It's Cain that goes on and builds a city. It's Cain that goes on and has his adventures. The line of promise goes down through another one of Adam and Eve's children. And Abel is never again uh, part of the biblical story. It's just a, a life that seems like it is meaningless. It's transient. It's fleeting. It's coming. It's gone. It doesn't seem to go anywhere. There's this lingering sense of injustice. It is Hebel. That's that word. It's his life that captures the meaning of Hebel, meaningless. And then when you come all the way over to the New Testament, there is one time, just one time, in the New Testament where this word is mentioned. Now, it's the, it's the Greek word now, not the Hebrew, because this is a different language, but the equivalent word, one time. And it's in Romans chapter 8. It's a very significant passage. Let me read it to you. Romans 8 verse 20. It says, For the creation was subjected to frustration. Now, that's that same word. It's translated frustration now. Could it could easily be translated meaninglessness. The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. So what Paul is saying, this is written by the Apostle Paul, what he's saying now is this, this sense of meaninglessness that we carry with us, it's not just us. 
It's all creation. All creation has now got this sense of meaninglessness because of human sin. Because all the way back in the garden, when human beings rebelled against God, when we turned away from Him, when we declared our independence from Him, it wasn't just our hearts that were affected by that. It wasn't even just our relationships that were affected by that. It was the entirety of creation. It was the entire cosmos that was thrown out of whack through sin. The entire creation was a project that was going somewhere, but because of our disobedience, our rebellion as human beings, it was knocked off track. It was thrown off course, knocked off kilter. And now all of creation, Paul says, is in this cycle of meaninglessness. All of creation now is affected by the curse, by the fall of sin. The whole thing, the whole cosmos now exists in this state of hebel. And it's groaning now to be liberated from that. It's groaning to be released from that. It's groaning for something else, but it's stuck. It's entrenched. We live in a very real sense now in a meaningless existence, a meaningless cosmos because of sin. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. Paul then turns a corner in the same verse and he says, in hope, in verse 21, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of God, of the children of God. And so Paul is saying something has happened that has restored hope and restored meaning to the world, to humanity, to creation. And that something we know is a someone, yes, and it is Jesus of Nazareth. That what Jesus has done is to step into the meaninglessness of this world. What Jesus has done through his incarnation is to step into the hebel, the meaningless existence that we have. And he took on our human nature. He took on all the limitations of our flesh. He took on, in a sense, this kind of meaningless, mundane existence. He experienced the minutia of life. He experienced that kind of triviality that we, we often feel about life. He kind of experienced how, how things feel repetitious sometimes and mundane, how there is this kind of circularity to life. He felt it. He experienced it for 33 years and he took it all the way to the cross, all the way to his death on the cross. And as Jesus dies on the cross, you could think, you could see his death on the cross a little bit like the death of Abel. And you think about that connection. Here's Abel in the Old Testament, Genesis 4, who offers a righteous sacrifice. He's a righteous man. He offers the right sacrifice and his life is cut short. He's killed by his brother. Now, here's Jesus, in a sense, the new Abel, who offers the right sacrifice of his own life, offers the righteousness of his own life, and yet he's killed by his brothers, by his countrymen, by his fellow Jews. His life is snuffed out. And if you just look at the death of Jesus, and you don't get to the resurrection yet, if you just look at the death of Jesus, it seems like a meaningless act, doesn't it? It seems like a meaning, like a total miscarriage of justice that put him there. A life that was cut tragically short. A man who, who so many thought was going to be the Messiah and then just ended up a kind of seemingly failed Messiah. To look at Jesus on the cross in one sense is to look at Hebel. Is to look at and to stare at the meaninglessness of this life that this man's life could be cut so tragically short by his fellow Jewish countrymen. And that promise seemed lost until Easter Sunday. 
And that's what starts the story moving in a different direction. Because on Easter Sunday, God reaches down into the grave and he lifts the life of his son from death, from the grave. Jesus walks out of the tomb. And as he walks out of the tomb, it's not just one man walking out of a tomb. It's an entirely new future walking out of the tomb with him. It is an entirely new world opening up. It's a new kingdom being born. It's a new creation coming into existence. Jesus carried all of that out of the tomb with him. And in the first instance, what the resurrection does is it enables us to see the cross in a new light. That's the first thing that the resurrection does. Because of Jesus rising from the dead, now we look back at the cross and we can see that wasn't meaningless at all. That wasn't the meaningless death of a meaningless man. That was a death full of meaning and full of power and full of relevance to our lives. There's a verse in the book of Hebrews that says, Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And when you think about Abel's name, meaningless, that verse to me takes on huge new power. That Abel's life, in a sense, speaks that word meaningless into humanity. It just shows us a seemingly meaningless death, meaningless act of violence, meaningless suffering. And yet here is Jesus whose death speaks a better word, whose Jesus' death speaks meaning back into human life, back into human history, back into the world, back into the trajectory of where we are going because Jesus fundamentally has reconciled us with God so that now our identity is received from him. It's not something we have to create. It's not something we have to construct ourselves. We know who we are in relationship with God. That is where ultimate meaning comes from. That's where ultimate meaning is to be found in our connection with the God who created us. And then secondly, what Christ has done is given the world back its future. He's given creation back its future. That's why Paul says that that creation has now been set free so that one day it will enjoy this liberation. Creation has been liberated so that one day when Jesus returns, creation itself is going to be redeemed and renewed and resurrected and brought to that completion, that place, that perfection that God always intended for it to have. That creation in the beginning was always going somewhere and it lost that future along the way because of sin. But what the death and resurrection of Jesus has done is given the world back its future, given creation back its future so that the day will come, Christ returns and we're ushered into this new creation where we are finally restored in the image of God. Men and women whose image of God is perfected and we are reconciled fully to God. We're reconciled to ourselves We're reconciled to one another. We're reconciled even to the physical creation. So everything renewed and perfected in the image of God. And there is nothing but shalom. What the Bible describes as shalom, the peace of God. That is what Christ has brought about, that beautiful new world that now sits in front of us. Not a a pipe dream, but a very real assurance for those of us that belong to Jesus that that day is coming. And that world is coming. It is an existence that will be full of the presence and the beauty and the glory of God. Not just this kind of self, 
indulgent paradise. Sometimes I think that's how we think about heaven or think about the new creation, just like it's going to be an eternal trip to Disneyland, you know, like we're all just going to be able to indulge our kind of consumer impulses forever. But the reason that heaven is heaven, the reason that the new creation will be so extraordinary is because everything will be infused with the life and love and presence of God. It will be a completely Christ-centered existence. That's where its beauty comes from. Not a, not a self-centered, self-indulgent existence anymore, but a totally God-centered existence where we are immersed in the presence of Father, Son, and Spirit, and we live within that community and the community of our brothers and sisters on forever and ever and ever in an endless paradise. That is the new creation. Now, because Jesus has given that future back to the world, that is what breathes meaning back into the present. If this world's not going anywhere, if there's nothing to hope for beyond this life, then there is very little hope and meaning for us in the present. But if Jesus has given the world back its future, that breathes meaning back into our present existence. Let me show you how this works. Uh, let me read a quote from one of my favorite authors, Tom Wright, who says this. What you do in the Lord is not in vain. You are not oiling the wheels of a machine that is about to roll off a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown on the fire. You are not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Now, when you, when you compare that to the quote by Thomas Nagel earlier on, it couldn't be more different, could it? You think of Nagel's words, doesn't matter what you do in this life, doesn't matter how great your achievements are, it's all going to come to nothing. It's, it'll, once you're gone, it'll be as if you've never existed. And yet Tom Wright is saying, no, it does matter. Because the difference is the life of Christ. And the, the key, I think, is right at the beginning of that quote where he says, what you do in the Lord is not in vain. I mean, there are still plenty of ways to live a meaningless life if you want to. Right? There are still plenty of ways to waste your life. If you want to waste it just in self-indulgence and self-gratification and just pleasing yourself, you can do that. And that will come to nothing and that will mean nothing. But if we lean into the life of Christ... If we lean into the life that Jesus has given us, the abundant life is what he called it, the fullness of life, relationship with God, relationship with one another, relationship with the world, we live into that life, then what we do in the Lord is not in vain. That as we experience the grace of God in our life, and then by God's grace, we show little acts of faith and hope and love to others, those little steps that we take, those little actions that we take, they somehow, and I don't know how this happens exactly, but somehow in the providence of God, somehow those little steps of faith that we take, they become part of God's new world that he will bring about when Christ returns. Even the smallest little act of faith, hope, and love that you show in this life will somehow then be gathered up when Christ returns and brought into this new world. That God is going to bring about. A lot of what we do in this life is just going to be swept away. Paul talks about this. At the judgment, a lot of what we do is just going to be blown away. It's going to be wood, hay, and stubble. It'll mean nothing. But some of what we do in this life, 
those things that we do in the grace of God, leaning more fully into his power and presence and allowing him to move through us into the lives of others, those things, Paul says, will last on. They will last on past the judgment into God's new world and they'll become part of that final kingdom. Because God's not building two kingdoms, is he? There is only, there is one kingdom. And when Jesus came to earth and he said, the kingdom of God is near, that was the real deal. That was the kingdom. It came about in Christ. It's continuing to take shape among us now. With every act of faith, hope, and love, with every person that becomes a follower of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is coming about. Every time God's rule and reign is present on earth, God's kingdom is taking shape. And one day Jesus will come back and he will complete that kingdom. It's not something we're going to do. It's not something we do by our own strength. Jesus will come about and he'll bring the whole thing to completion. But it will be the completion of what he has already begun to do. Now that, when you put those two pieces together, to me, that breathes tremendous meaning into the present. Because it means that we are not, it's, this is not just a dress rehearsal for eternity, this life. This is not just, a, but we're just like we're just playing around, mucking around, and then God's just going to wipe it all away and then do something totally new. God's already beginning to bring about his kingdom now. He's been doing it since Jesus was raised from the dead. And even the smallest Acts that we do in Jesus' name. An act as small as praying for someone. Something as small as showing love to someone else. Showing some practical help and kindness to someone who's struggling or battling or in need in some way. Something like sharing a bit of your story with someone who doesn't know Christ. These, these small little acts of faith, hope and love. In some way, they become part of God's new world. And what could be more meaningful than that, right? Right? What could be more meaningful than having our lives in the present reverberate on into God's new creation? That is where meaning comes from. That should infuse a bit of meaning into our everyday, normal, ordinary lives in the present. It doesn't mean that life is necessarily going to be any more dramatic or exciting. We're still going to feel all of that kind of circularity and the mundane nature of life, but now it means that things can be infused with the power and the presence of God because they are done in Jesus' name and we know they have abiding significance not only in this life but also in the life to come. Let me mention one final way as we close that Jesus' death and resurrection breathe meaning back into our lives today. The life of Christ also gives us huge meaning in the face of dying, in the face of facing our own mortality, facing up to our own death, sooner or later. This is, the, this is the fate of every human being, is what Ecclesiastes tells us. And the power of Christ that has come into this world gives us a remarkably different way of looking at our own death. I want to read you something in a minute, uh, and I want to ask you to compare it to what you saw in that video clip with Warren Schmidt. He's obviously a fictitious character, but there's someone who's facing death. And he's facing it with a sense of hopelessness. He's facing it with that sense of what has my life mattered? It's all just useless and it's come to nothing. A sense of total gloom and despair and hopelessness. I want to compare that to something that was written by a man named Andrew Norton. Now, some of you know Andrew. He actually had a bit to do with Shaw in the early days. He uh, was a Presbyterian minister. He was a minister at St. Columba Church in Auckland for many years. 
Uh, and then he was the moderator of the Presbyterian Church in New Zealand for several years. Wonderful man. Uh, last year, he passed away after a long battle with cancer. But Andrew, among other things, was a poet. He wrote some beautiful poetry and uh, also was a photographer, some amazing artwork. And I was uh, sent something after his funeral, which contained a number of his poems. And one of them is called The Grace of Dying. It's the la- I understand the last poem that he wrote as he was facing his own imminent death. And as I looked, as I read that, and had Ecclesiastes in my mind in this message, and thought about that general sense of hopelessness that so many people feel about life and about death, it just struck me as such a total contrast with the way that most people approach their own death. So I thought I'd finish just by reading to you uh, an extract from his poem, The Grace of Dying, which I think helps us to see the hope that there truly is in Christ and the difference that it makes in a real person's life facing their own mortality. Let me read this to you. There is a returning, a homecoming, a movement from the unknown to the known, incomplete to complete, fragmented to whole. This returning is what I call the grace of dying. This is not in any way new to us. We have experienced this cycle through the seasons every year of our lives, summer, autumn, winter, and spring. Each announced nature's cycle of death and resurrection. Each season returns, and in returning, everything turns. These have been our companions all through the years, and yet we have not held them in our hands long enough for them to speak into our lives, or to realize that one day we too may be called to withdraw, let go, and die. Surrender comes with an unexpected gift at the end of the struggle. I love the way that he picks up on the language of Ecclesiastes. And you can hear it there if you've read that first chapter of Ecclesiastes. And, and he's saying, yes, there is that rhythm of life. There is that circularity of life. And we know this and we've experienced this through the seasons of life. But ultimately, for those who belong to Jesus, it's not just an endless cycle. But he's saying there is a movement from death to life. There is a great movement in the end from brokenness to wholeness. From incompleteness to completeness. From mortality to immortality. From death to resurrection. That's the hope that we have. That's ultimately where meaning in life comes from. And so if you come back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, if you just read Ecclesiastes on its own, you are going to be thoroughly depressed. It is a depressing book. But if you let Ecclesiastes point you to Jesus... And you see that Ecclesiastes embodies the searching. It asks the questions. It expresses the frustration. And it raises that yearning that ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth through his life, his death, his resurrection. That is the answer and the fulfillment of everything that Ecclesiastes is looking for. Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. And then you get all the way to the end of the Bible, the second to last chapter. And the voice from the throne says, I'm making everything new. So what has happened in between Ecclesiastes and Revelation? Jesus, right? God has done something new in Jesus. 
Solomon couldn't see it yet in his day. He still looked for it. He was still living hundreds of years before Jesus. And he's saying there's nothing new under the sun. But in the coming of Jesus into this world, God did something new. Now there is something new under the sun because of Jesus. And it is him who breathes meaning back into our lives, back into our world, and back into our future. And so may you know that meaning in your lives today, deeply, personally. May you take hold of the meaning that is in Christ. And may you find that even in the ordinary things that you do, that make up so much of life, the ordinary rhythms of life, the mundane, the minutia, may you find even in those things that they become infused with the life and the power of Jesus Christ as you do them in Jesus' name. And may you know the hope of the future to which you're called. May that transform life from being meaningless to meaningful because of Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. Jesus, we want to acknowledge honestly before you that we feel a lot of the time exactly how Solomon felt. And we feel sometimes the, the meaninglessness of this life and the meaninglessness. And, and, and we ask, we wonder all the same things, God. In these quiet moments, we just wonder all the same things, whether, whether really our lives add up to much, whether all that we're doing in our lives, all that we've done, all that we're yet to do, whether it really amounts to much at all. And I thank you, Jesus, that as we look to you, we can see, in one sense, we can see that there is an absolute futility to our life. That no, it doesn't. On our own, you, you say to us, no, on your own, you, you, you don't add up to anything. But in me, you can find fulfillment. Lord, I thank you that in you, we can find the meaning that we spend our lives looking for that it's not going to come through our own achievements. It's not going to come through our own accomplishments. There's, there's nothing that we could do that would earn what you have so freely given us, that we find our meaning and our purpose in you. And so, Jesus, I just want to pray that you'd help us to take our eyes off ourselves. Help us to stop looking for some sense of meaning and purpose just in and of ourselves and in what we do, and help us instead to lift our eyes up and place them upon you and allow you to breathe that meaning, hope, and purpose into our lives. We thank you that it comes from you and not from ourselves. We thank you that because of you, our identity is secure. We thank you that because of you, our hope and our future is secure. We thank you that in you, we can face even our own death with the confidence of knowing that just as you were raised from the dead, we will be resurrected with you one day. Thank you for the hope. Thank you for the purpose. Thank you for the meaning that you breathe into our lives. Come and keep speaking it into our hearts when we need to hear it most. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.